Hi, my name is Fritzi Horseman, and welcome to Compassion in Action. My guest today is Chris Wilson, author of The Master Plan. The Master Plan is a book about Chris's journey from being incarcerated to being a successful artist and entrepreneur. Chris's story is so inspiring, and the book is incredible. Uh, I couldn't put it down. It was a page turner. It was like an action-packed uh, suspense novel, it, and it it kept going. And I recommend reading the book first and then listening to this interview because there are a few spoilers. But if if you have to just listen to this interview to start, no problem. Here's a little bit about Chris. Chris Wilson splits his time between Baltimore, Maryland and New York City and works as a visual artist, author, film producer and social justice advocate. Through his work, he investigates societal injustices, human relationships and public policies. His book, The Master Plan, continues to inspire people from all walks of life. His artwork is collected and displayed internationally and his production company, Cuttlefish, has produced several successful films, including The Box, which was recently featured in the Tribeca Film Festival. He is also the founder of the Chris Wilson Foundation, which supports social entrepreneurs and prison education, including re-entry and financial literacy for returning citizens, as well as art-related programs. Chris Wilson, welcome to Compassion in Action. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm so impressed with your book um, because I feel like this book is basically a how to get out of prison manual. Um, and it was it was a riveting read. It, you know, I had got I had gotten it a while ago, but I didn't read it until until a couple of weeks ago, but I couldn't put it down. I didn't know that that your journey was not only um, transformative, but it, it it's it's a movie. It's a movie, and it's a movie. That's for sure. Um, so I want to begin this discussion um, with how you realized your own intrinsic value, because the messages given to you as a child was that you're you're worthless. Although I know you had a couple of moments, there were sparks when your mom wasn't using that yes. she really saw your value, but you. As you say in your book, and I'm just going to, one of my favorite quotes in this book is, you can always go lower. Rock bottom is a decision. It's the moment you decide to stop falling and take control of your life. Yes. So. Yeah. So, uh, so thanks, thanks again for having me. Uh, I would say you mentioned my, my relationship with my mother earlier in my life. And I think that those early years were instrumental in who I've become and who I am as a person. And my mom was very loving growing up. She instilled in me a lot of values and would tell me about this potential that I had, even though at the time I didn't know what she was talking about, but she always told me that I had this potential to do something. I thought something was wrong with me because I, didn't, I wasn't interested in sports and I didn't watch a lot of TV and all my siblings did. And so I thought something was wrong with me, but my mom just gave me a little extra more attention. And she just encouraged me that I was a good person and that I could do something really awesome with my life. And it took me a long time, maybe until my, my early twenties to kind of understand the potential that my mom was talking about. Right, but so you're sentenced to life. You've, you've done a horrible crime, you've sentenced to life. And every message you're receiving from the world, from your environment is you have no value, you have no worth. And, right. and by your actions, you agreed with that at, on some level. Yeah, I, I agree that I should have been punished for the, the crime that I commit, no doubt about that. I think when I first went to prison, I didn't tell the full circumstances of what happened of like people came after me, you know, my family was being stalked. And I defended myself, uh, but I had to also accept the, the fact that I took a person's life. And so uh, I accepted that fact. And, you know, that allowed me to move on through my rehabilitative process while I was in prison with a life sentence. Right. But there was a day when you said, I'm worth it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go for it. 
So what was that day or what was that moment when you, when you just, when it all turned on or was there one? I don't know. Yeah, there was a day. There was a day where I guess two years into my sentence, I was uh, in prison in the rec room and there was a person who uh, eventually inspired me to see uh, my potential and do something with my life. It was my friend I write about, Stephen Edwards, who became like a brother to me and started mentoring me, his family started to come visit me and take me in and encourage me to study. But it was that relationship when he told me that, you know, despite us having taken everything from us and having to serve prison sentences, no one can take away knowledge that we put in our minds. And he says, this is how we'll be free. And this is how we'll do some good in the world. And I was, I didn't really instantly uh, take it in because I said, dude, we got life sentences. How, do, how, how is this going to happen? Even if, you know, we, we had this internal transformation, we're not getting out. And he just looked at me with like the utmost confidence and says, I'm getting out. This is how I'm getting out. You, you decide how you want to do this. And, and that was the aha moment for me was, this is what I got to commit to. This is who I am. And so now it's time to prove it. And that's how it started. So wait, this is who I am. Who is, what does that mean? So I kept, around this time, I kept thinking to myself, I know I'm a good person. I started uh, writing down on sheets of paper of like, what's my end game? Who would I be at, let's say, age 40? I knew I was an entrepreneur. I knew I was the type of person who wanted to create a, a business to help people. I always wanted to write a book one day. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to buy my dream car. I wanted to speak Spanish. All these things that I wanted to learn and accomplish in places I wanted to visit. I put it all down on a sheet of paper and I called it like my positive delusion or, or you know, my master plan. This is what I'm getting up out to bed every day uh, and working towards. And I worked on it for about 10 years straight, every day, no, no days off. Yeah, you said if it was on the list, it was law. Yeah. I wouldn't stop until it was done. Yes. And, but now there was a time, there was that moment with Reggie, I think it's Reggie when you knew something bad was going to happen. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that in prison, there, uh, in order to get out of there, there's like this, this cultural norm of having to mind your business. I understood that early when I got into prison. It's like, all right, some things are going to happen. I might have an opinion about it, but if it has nothing to do with me, I got to mind my business. And there was some altercations and some words exchanged with people around me. Uh, and the guy I write about Reggie was uh, involved in this exchange. And it just was ugly to, to, to before like stuff happened, just to kind of anticipate what would happen. Like people threaten people and then a lot of people got hurt around this time. And I felt bad because I knew it was gonna happen. And it was just one of those awful things about prison where a lot of stuff is going on. And you got to think about what's really important for you and your family. And, and for me, it was returning home to my family or just being free again one day. So I couldn't, I couldn't afford to get involved with situations. Right. Um, I mean, what, what's incredible is you didn't have one, in California, we call it an RVR, like a rule violation. You didn't have one. Yeah, none. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, it's sparkling record and you, and um, here's another quote from you. It's, you say, it's not one day that changes your life. It's every day. Right. Right. I feel like that now. Uh, uh, it's, it, it's really important. I, I, I put on my plan to remain a lifelong learner. And so we should always be striving to be the best versions of ourselves. And a lot of that comes from education and from, from therapy and you know, soaking up wisdom from people because like we won't live long enough to recover from all the mistakes that we'll make in life. And so we have to actively seek out, you know, amazing people and study and learn. And that's what I'm on a quest to do. And so that's, that's what gets me out to bed every morning, to be a better version of myself. So I hear from all kinds of people from prison. Um, you know, there's people that are on the path and then there's people that are getting high, um, watching porn, doing... I call it shenanigans. It's just like, but basically betraying themselves in a way, like not honoring who they really are, but kind of in denial. But I also think that's partially because they're so depressed and so hopeless. Um, 
how do we how do we inspire those that are have lost their way and continue to lose their way and wake them up to their own um, their own perfection and divinity as I call it. So maybe the first step, I think, for people who want to reach uh, people like this is understand what they have to go through and what they've been through like in the past. And so I think about when I was in prison and we had to do group therapy and it would be people in my therapy group, young people, 15 years old, 16 year old, 60 years, 50 years. And I would read about them in a the newspaper. They would call them monsters and all of this stuff. And then when they would open up in group, they would talk about you know horrible conditions and foster care or sexual abuse. I mean, all of this stuff that happens in our society and what I've come to realize is that hurt people hurt people. Uh, and I think it's important for us as a society to be more uh, preventative than reactionary. Oftentimes as a society, we just react when something happens. We make tougher penalties or we make you know, all kinds of things. And that's not necessarily the right solution for it. Even with drugs, like if you have a drug problem and you're getting high, and even if you're stealing and breaking into stuff, you should still be, you should still go to uh, a drug treatment facility. What is 10 years or 20 years in prison going to do for your addiction? It's drugs in prison. doesn't help you. And so I'm really confused about how our criminal justice system operates. Well, I mean, you make a really good point. Um, I look at the criminal justice system as a trauma response. You know, when someone hits you, you want to hit them back. That's, that's just a normal trauma response. And because we are <clears throat> evolving as a society, we need to move from fight or flight into our cortex, which is what I like to say. And that's basically what you did. You move from fight or flight. You move from, you know, getting into the reactive part of your brain into the responsive and, you know, divine part of your brain. Right. Um, um, so this is, I'm just going to keep quoting you because I just couldn't stop. You, you write, it wasn't a complicated message. My brain was saying, don't give in to temptation, not even once. Don't cut corners or do anything that could lead to trouble, even if I could get away with it. One mistake and I'll be living my other nightmare, the helpless old man in a prison cell. Yeah. I mean, that was really important to me. And I had that nightmare about waking up and being an old man and being in prison for decades. And so I was terrified. I would wake up and I would see people who I were friends with who had been in prison for 30 and 40 years. And so it just really messed my head up. And I just, it was a reminder to myself. It still is a reminder to myself. People are always watching. And there are also elements, people, systems who want to see people like me back in prison or mess up just so they can say, look, even this guy can't even turn his life around. And so I think about all of that. I think about the people who look up to me, who are following in my footsteps that are currently incarcerated. Uh, I think about all of them. And so I make sure I do the right thing even when no one's watching. Because like if I mess up, then I'm messing it up for everybody. So I got to stay focused. We all got to stay focused. But on another level, you're also messing up to yourself, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it, totally. It's taking accountability for who you truly are, which is, to me, is the path to freedom. No matter what we've done, if we're accountable, um, that turn that 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 truth about who we are that it, it undoes the shame, and it 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 changes it into possibility. Totally. But that's the that's the key of 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 your conviction because you are being accountable to yourself and it, and that's how it, how it kind of became such a powerful act that you did. Um, there was no, you were not letting yourself slide and we all do that, you know, no, you know, we run a red light or we run a stoplight, you know, we just do little things, but those little things, eventually you're gonna get caught, right? Eventually. Yeah, they're right. And in prison, 100%, you know, you don't tuck your shirt in or, you know, one guy said he had too many books in his, his, his room, his cell. And so he got a violation. Yeah. And so it's like, what are we, um, well, it's a whole nother thing talking about the criminal justice system, because actually you talk about that here. You, you said, um, you say, instead of complaining about my situation, 
I should, oh, no, this is another one. Um, this is another one, sorry. Um, once you're in the system, you're no longer a human being. Right. It doesn't matter what you do or how many days in a row, more than 3,000 in my case, they see you work and follow the rules. You gave up your humanity when they stripped you naked at the door. You were a number now, and the only important rule was this, numbers stay inside. Right, that's right. And I think about that a lot, and I remind people, men and women, I go into prisons and jails often now, and I remind them of what the system is set up to do. And it's that, to keep you in there, keep those beds filled, make it as difficult as possible for you to be released or stay released. Right, so your job was to show the judge and everybody in that prison because um, even the guards were, um, were on your side. They wanted you out. You right. had to show them that you were human. You had to undo the stigma of your number and the stigma of your arrest and the stigma of your crime. And right. so, but you're also showing yourself that you're human. That's true. Sure, I didn't think about it like that, but but that's true, yes. Yeah, the master plan is is a spiritual journey, is what I see it is. is it, it's, it's overcoming, it's like Rocky, it's like Rocky Balboa. It's, uh, uh, it's, no, but it's overcoming unimaginable odds. The odds were stacked up yeah. against you. You say one in a million, right? Yeah, it's about one in a million. And, you know, one of the things that was important that I wrote on the master plan was I said, figure out what led me to come to prison and kind of just correct that. That was really important to me. Uh, I, I knew it wasn't like about my crime, but like a, a series of decisions that I made as a young person responding to like the trauma that I experienced, that my mom experienced. All those decisions I've revisited uh, through therapy uh, while incarcerated. And that was you know, once I have a under, grasp the understanding of that, I was able to, to start thinking differently and start envisioning a different life for myself. But I had to unpack all that stuff first. Right. And the key here is that you were a victim way before you created any victim. Yes. Yes. And not just a victim of one crime, of hundreds of crimes, from what I can tell with your stepfather and your mother. And you know, I always, I don't want to blame anybody for what they've done because we're all human and we're all, we've all been victims as well. So, um, but to come to our own understanding of why we, why we made those crimes is, is a, is a huge, that's why I do that work with trauma. That's why we do in prison is that trauma work because you have to forgive yourself starting out. Right. Right. It took me a long time to get to that point, but I agree with you 100%. It took me years to get to where it was, where it was real, where it was genuine. Sorry, I, I keep, like our conversation is perfect because every quote goes right into it. I'm going to talk about remorse. This is what you say, and then I'll, I'll let you talk about remorse. Remorse isn't, a feeling, isn't feeling bad about what you've done. It's not accepting responsibility. I had done that years before. Remorse is bigger and was acknowledging that you did something irrevocably wrong, followed by the overwhelming feeling that you need to dedicate your life to making up for that sin. Yeah, it was maybe six years into my incarceration and I had been in therapy the whole time, but we had a victim's impact therapy session where folks incarcerated people will have therapy with victims of crimes from, from the outside. And they would come into the prison, we'll sit down, we'll have therapy. It's about a six month program or something like that. And I, I remember the experience of talking to some victims and them telling me horrible stories of stuff that happened to family members, uh, losing children. And I remember this woman who I write about, she looked up and was like, these people who did this to my daughter were monsters, like you guys. Mm. And I remember how I felt when she described the crime that happened to her daughter who was raped and who was stabbed and they set her on fire. I mean, it was awful. And I just, I felt every, every part of what she explained to me. And I just, I kept thinking to myself, I was angry, just as angry as she was. Like, how could someone do this to her? She was minding her business. She was just getting off the school bus. And then she said, these people who did it were people like you. 
And I said, I'm not like that. Like I would, I, I couldn't do something like that to someone. And then I had to think about, you know, my charge and what it looks like on paper, people who don't know me or people who wasn't there uh, to understand mitigating circumstances. And I said, that's how people see me. And when I went back to my housing unit after this therapy session, some of the people in the group was just like, I would have done the same thing or I would have done this. And I couldn't believe it. And I said, I'm not like that. And I said, it's, it's not enough for me to just say I'm not like that. My actions have to prove that I'm a different person than some of the people in my housing unit. And so I just started uh, just proving through my behavior. I stepped up and became a mentor, started mentoring. I started tutoring, teaching foreign languages. I just started doing everything I can do to distinguish myself from someone who's just saying that they're changed. I wanted people to see it. And that's when I knew I was genuinely remorseful of, of, of the crime I committed. Cause I started doing stuff like, like meaningful stuff, even when no one was looking. Yeah. Because at the end, it's all about your own accountability to yourself. It's, and that's the, that's the genius of your, your journey is, you know, you took, you went all the way, you went all the way to, to, to understanding your own perfection, right? This was, this is about, I am, I am awesome and I'm going to prove it. Yes. Yes. And, I, and, and that's what happened though. Everybody, everybody started to agree with you. <laughs> yeah. It took a long time, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it hasn't stopped ever since, ever since, you know, ever since you got out, I mean, before that too, but it has not stopped. And what you keep doing, like you're kind of like a, like this miracle for, for anybody, it's like not even just for people who have never been to prison, you're, you're a miracle, what's happened to you. I mean, look at that art behind behind your head. Yeah. I mean, Chris you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's by you. And you didn't even know you could do that, did you? I didn't, yeah. It was, I discovered it serendipitously, I guess. Although my younger, uh, my school teachers for when I was younger, they would disagree reaching out to me lately said you were you were drawing you were winning art contests you was you was doing this when you was young it was it was always in you but only a few years ago maybe seven or eight years ago where I really like embrace uh the visual artist path yes but now because this to me see I feel like you are you're one man talking for everyone in prison right now you are you are not the exception although what you've done was exceptional you were the rule like every to me every single person in prison is capable of that art that you've done it, it'll, it'll look different but is capable of being a great artist or a great teacher or um, a great mentor and but there's that fear and I think this is true about most of people that are alive there's that fear that if I risk it and I fail it'll be worse than not having started at all. I don't see, I don't, I definitely don't see the world that way. And I think that there, maybe there's a unique uh, positive attribute from people who've been to prison is that we, we know what it feels like to fail. We know what it feels like to, to mess up and feel invisible. And if you decide to get back on your feet and come up with some plan after having experienced that, you know, failure looks different for people like us, I think. And if I have to go back to eating ramen noodles or, or whatever, I'm okay with that. But, you know, I, I will be upset with myself if I don't even try to reach my goal. A lot of people don't even try. They, they worry about failure or not being able to complete it. So that's what I can't live with, not even trying to get back on my feet. And so. Yeah, you talk about the guy you tutored who did the GED, he, he failed it 62 times, I think. Yeah, a bunch of times, yeah. But he eventually succeeded, right? Yes. And that's the thing, it's the thing. But I think, you know, I think a lot of the guys that are doing shenanigans in prison are afraid of confronting their trauma and afraid of confronting the possibility in themselves. I think that's, because no one's seen it for them. You know, I think, it's really important to have it reflected back to you. Right, exactly. And, and most of the people haven't had 
positive examples of people who've been where they've been, have come from where they come from, that has become successful. And so we, we often tell our young people or, or people uh, coming out from prison that you can be anything you want and you can be a lawyer, you could be a doctor, but they never met anyone in, in these occupations that has been come, become successful. And so I think it's important for anyone who uh, has come from the backgrounds that we come from, we have to champion all of those people. We have to, especially our young people, we have to show that we will make mistakes in our lives, uh, but you can't pick yourself back up. You can't, like education is powerful. Therapy is powerful. Healing uh, is powerful. And we got to talk more about it so that young people, because otherwise they're getting their information from, from rap music or just, you know, dysfunctional households or that they're friends. And so it's important for us uh, to be uh, positive examples for, for people in our community. So I'm always trying to talk about solutions and to problems and helping people find that switch within themselves. Yeah, I, you're really right about the, you need models. We need more models like you and to show people there is there are ways. I mean, we have a lot of sportsmen, a lot of athletes, but we also need artists and pe people that are successful that look like you, you know, that's, and that's what you're doing. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about is hunger in prisons. Um, people don't know that people are going hungry in prisons. I spent years going hungry in prison. I know about it. At least my first two years, I was hungry all the time. And why is that? There's not enough calories? What do you think is, is because I, I was shocked when I heard this. This was a couple of years ago I heard this. So I'm not an expert on this and I don't want to like, I don't want to speak for the entire prison, but I can just give you my perspective. You know, you know, some of the food that are, um, that is in prison and, and in jails is you can't eat it. It's like, it's disgusting. It's that bad that you literally can't eat it. You don't know what it is sometimes. And it's just some things that people are not going to eat. And so like, but they will serve it to you, give you just enough to keep you alive. And so you'll just be like, well, I don't even know what this is. I'm not eating this. So you skip the meal. Maybe you eat some, some peas and, and drink a milk, a carton of milk or something. And then, you, you know, you miss the meal. And then dinner time comes around and there's two hot dogs. <laughs> and it's like, all right, well, I'm not going, you know, I'm going to eat these hot dogs. Or maybe you don't eat hot dogs and you're just hungry. And if your family's not sending you money to, to buy commissary, then how are you going to eat? The prison don't care if you eat or not. They can say, I gave it to them. It's up to them to eat it. But it's just some stuff in prison, most stuff in prison, you just, you can't eat it. It's not, you don't even know what it is. It's disgusting. But that's the point. It's supposed to be punishment. That's how they see it. So um, I just, I'm going to read a, a paragraph about, about you giving to someone in prison. We had enough to share. So I started giving tuna, crackers, stamps, and other supplies to inmates short on commissary. What's this for, they asked, suspicious. You rarely get something for nothing in prison. I know you're hungry, that's all. I know you've been studying towards your GED. I just wanted to say, keep up the good work. And um, I just wanted to shed a light on that because that, that's seeing the person where they're at and having compassion and acting on that compassion. Right. That's what my mom taught me. So this is an attribute. I still have this to a fault, but my mom taught me to do this. She would find stray animals or just like people who were in foster homes. She would do everything she could like to help these people or help these animals. Uh, and I just be like, I used to complain. It's like, mom, but we supposed to go to the pet store and we're going to miss the opportunity to do this. She was like, we have to do this. And I was like, we don't even know these people, mom. And she just, she just, she made it, uh, she made it a thing. And so, this is stuck with me now. And when I became a mentor in prison, I would, I would do what I could for people. I, I, you know, I didn't want anything in return. I didn't know these people, but they could have been my brothers or, or sisters, uh, but I just did what I could. And I realized that over time, over the years of just helping people and not expecting anything in return other than the right thing. But uh, the blessings came back to me tenfold just by doing that. And you know, people always watch it. It's like people will watch it. Just, you know, you mean well, you're trying to help these folks. And I see some of these people 
in the community now who I mentored or tutored when I was in prison. And like, they'll, they'll have families now. Some are like fat and happy and go on vacation and stuff, but I love it. Like that's, that's the, that's the community that I envision it is like where we all help each other. We all want the same things. We want like a nice roof over our head. We want to, you know, raise our children and eat some good food and travel and do stuff. And I think, I, you know, I could be overly optimistic, but I see a world where we all looked out for each other and just, you know, you know, that's, that's how I see it. Yeah. And we can start in prison. That's, that's why I bring this up because I feel like if we take care of each other in prison, instead of, you know, make people enemies, the, right. whole, the whole thing changes. Because if you're hungry, you're in survival mode and you're not about to start learning anything. You're not about to get your GED done. You're just, right. you're just worried about getting fed. Absolutely, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, you're at the bottom of the pyramid. You, you haven't met your most basic needs. There's no way that you can self-actualize any kind of master plan or any you know, you're not thinking about that. You can't even get there. I know I couldn't. Exactly. So, I mean, that's, that's part of the prison reform is better food and food, enough food. That's, it's, it has to be. And in California, we spend $5 a day on people in prison and, um, but the budget's, I think it's $16 billion. And, and so, yeah, so that's, it's, if you, if you just take people, you treat people decently by giving them good food, they feel better about themselves, right? Two hot dogs does not make, make anyone feel good about themselves. Right, I agree. So um, one thing I wanted to bring up, you, you started a career center. And to me, this seems like an idea that could, that could scale. I don't know why, but I feel like if we started career centers in every prison and not just about building resumes, but building the master plan, building, you know, what's your end game, as you say. Um, it just seemed like, it seemed like a no brainer and people would gravitate to it because they all, every, I mean, the one thing people are petrified of is getting, is going home. It's, they're petrified of being in prison, but they're also petrified of going home. So can you explain what the, what the career center was and what yeah. happened there? I think, I think I'm gonna push back a little bit. I, I think what people are afraid of is going home and failing, going home and coming back to prison, going home and not being able to get a good job or letting down their family members or not being able to take care of their children. So like that, I think that is the, the real fear of people uh, coming home. Um, but, but I've decided that I wanted to learn more about career development. So I learned how to write uh, resumes and I started doing uh, interview preparation for people who were close to release while in prison. And so it was one of the things that it was like my aha moment of the number one way, this is what I learned in prison, the number one way how people find employment is through relationships. It's someone who's gonna say, oh, I know a person, or I know, uh, let me connect you and do this introduction. So it was just through relationships. And so I started studying and holding these workshops on how can people who come from very difficult neighborhoods develop uh, relationships with people who can be references for, for future jobs. And so that was one thing, resume writing, uh, and then packaging everything up and coaching people on how to be confident. And so I started doing mock interviews while I was in prison and people would come in and do like their elevator pitch. And they would say stuff like, you know, Mr. Mr. Wilson, I would, I'll do anything. You know, I don't have much skills currently, but I'm a fast learner. I can shovel trash. I can do anything. And I would stop them. I would say, listen, you, you, you've worked uh, a few jobs over the past eight years. You got a lot of uh, expert transferable skills that you could put on your resume that you can speak to. And I said, second, like you don't go into a room with an employer and, and make yourself seem desperate. I said, do you, do you, approach uh, women like this, I'll do anything for your phone number. I'll do, I said, we, you, need, you need to be confident and you need to have done your homework on this organization, the market, and you need to let them know the value that you add to the company or to the operation. And you need to be confident about that. I said, because if you're not, 
they're not going to be confident about hiring you. And so I did this kind of work when I was in prison and it was really, really rewarding. And uh, a lot of people uh, went home and got jobs. I was still stuck in prison, but it was, it was all worth it. Well, yeah. And, but I think people need that feedback and it's also, it's also, it's like, they need the, those reps to go in the interview so that when they finally get there, but tell the story about, um, you, le- you learned three languages plus Mandarin, you were starting to learn Mandarin before you left prison and you learned Italian. Can you tell the story about that amazing thing? Yeah, so I wanted to learn Spanish. I didn't have any resources or, or money to get the Spanish or uh, the Spanish software and tapes and CDs to get started. But I had a friend who, uh, from a Sicilian family and he had some CDs and some tapes. And so I said, you know, can I borrow them from him? He said, I'm not using them. I don't, I'm Sicilian, but I don't really care. I'm, you know, so I, I, I got the tapes and CDs and started studying. And I studied Italian for, I'm still studying Italian, but I studied for about uh, two years and some change. Uh, I was watching Italian TV shows and every day I studied. And then I went on to study Spanish and after Spanish, I went on to study Mandarin. And fast forward, you know, I spent almost half my life in prison, but I remember being in Italy a few years ago and in Sicily specifically, uh, in a mountain, in a place where black people are not supposed to be at. And our cars, because it was raining, our cars were sliding off the mountain and we had to walk through uh, the towns to get off this mountain. And we got stopped by some people. And they were like, they want to know why I was there. What are you here for? Black dude, we don't like black dudes here, all this stuff. And I remember uh, speaking to them, you know, Picere di Conoscola, Michiamo Cristiano. And I just like, we started talking in Italian. They started looking at articles that were written about me. And then they just changed. And then they said, you know what? We're going to take you to a local pub. Uh, you know, your drinks are in the house, food's in the house, your money's no good here. And they kiss in both cheeks. I had to get used to that in Italy. Uh, but it was a really wonderful experience. And when I go back into jails and prisons now, I tell people, you never know the returns you'll get on the time that you invest in your education in here. It's definitely worth it. But like, I would have never expected just all of those uh, years of studying Italian that it would save my life at some point in the future. You just don't know how things will turn out. Right, but it also got you one of your first jobs, right? <laughs> yes. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, but the first person who interviewed me was uh, from Italy, and she just switched it straight over uh, to Italian, and we just we we kept going. It was fun. Yes, but who? Yeah, I would think Italian would be the least important language to learn, but it's turned out to be saving your life and also getting you a job. Yes. So, you know, nothing, you know, it's all valuable. All of these, you know, why do we learn chemistry? I don't know, but it's all valuable and it's all important. I'm, I wanna just start on your master plan. I wanna talk about the master plan because this is, this, tell us what the master plan is, what your master plan is. So my master plan is a series of goals and potential uh, like accomplishments and places I want to visit, educational, therapeutic. Uh, But like essentially I thought about before I created the master plan of my end game. And the end game, I conducted this scenario in my cell while in prison with a life sentence. I said to myself, if I die today, what would people say about me? What would they write? What would my obituary say? And I thought about that. I said, I hadn't done anything positive really in my life. I disappointed my mother. I disappointed my grandparents. I didn't graduate from high school. You know, people would say he took a person's life. He was a failure. He was a loser, maybe. I don't know. I thought about all these things. And I said to myself while thinking about this, that's not who I am. So I had to envision, I call it a positive illusion. I had to envision who I knew I was, what I would do. And then I had to work towards it. And so in my end game, I said, I will be a successful entrepreneur. Didn't know I would be an artist, but some successful entrepreneur, I will create a business that uh, gives me financial stability, but also helps people. I want to write a book. I want to travel around the world. So I put all this stuff down. So I had this profile of the person that I wanted to become. 
So I started working backwards. What do I need to do today that gets me closer to the person I want to become? And so I wrote all this down. I shared a copy with my judge and my grandmother, because the other important thing about this is if you come up with your own master plan, you need an accountability partner. So you need to share your plan with someone and you give them the power to hold you accountable. If I tell you I'm getting my high school diploma, I share my plan with you, you see me three months later, I'm tasking you with checking me. What's the status? You signed up for your classes? Have you graduated yet? Do you need anything? What's, what's going on? And I don't like letting people down. So when I share my plans and my goals with people, like that's my word. I got to work on it. And so that's, that's how I did it and how I'm advocating for people to start thinking about their lives. Think about their legacy. That integrity, but you're saying that's my word. And so basically what you have said to yourself is when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And, and whether it gets accomplished or not, you're, you're taking the steps towards it. Yes. But so that you have put yourself into a position of being important because yeah. it's, it's that value thing we talked about earlier. You value who you are and therefore, and that's, such a, that's the shift that, that people in prison have the opportunity to. to yeah. yeah, I call it uh, like developing a sense of agency over yourself and your life. And it's like, I, 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 am, I now understand that I am in control of my life. I mean, so many people that I, I've encountered while in prison and in the outside world of just like feeling like that these systems are dictating the fate of their lives. That's not true. We, we dictate uh, the fate of our lives, not the systems. A hundred percent. And people in prison feel like they're victims of the system. Yeah. And they are to a certain extent. I but, agree. but there is a way to take agency over yourself and like, so my thing is, I don't think I can, I can dismantle the prison system. I'll try, but, but I don't think I can. And not, at least not in my lifetime, but I can make sure that it doesn't get me. It doesn't entrap me. It doesn't entrap like my friends, my loved ones. And that's what I'm trying to do is like, how do I mentally prepare individuals who are inside or outside where they can see this? It's almost like Neo in the matrix where you can start seeing the code and understanding the machines and how they think. And it's like, all right, you won't get me. I know what you guys are up to. <laughs> exactly. Um, there's a man, Richard, that I, his name's Sanjay, and we correspond and he's been, he was on death row. He was about to be killed. He had two death dates about to be killed. And now he's in a level two prison. And I wrote to him, I said, he said, you know, why am I still in prison? He's 70 years old. And I said, the reason you're there is because you, you're still needed in prison, I think. I mean, cause I can't, I can't explain it myself because he needs to come home, but I think he still needs to mentor people and there's still work to be done for him on his soul or whatever, whatever spiritual path you want to say. But I think those words, and I'm, I just sent him your book um, and he's starting a book club for us, um, but he's not letting the system drag him down. He's, he's understanding, you know, the ways you have to maneuver and you also have to just stick, stay. He hasn't had any rule violations since they found too many books in his cell. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So on your master plan, it was, you didn't expect to become a, an artist. Like, first I wanna talk about, you're also a filmmaker. You also did the film called Box, which yes. um, is about solitary confinement. So let's first, let's, before we get into your career, your full career, let's talk about you being a filmmaker and also creating Box and your experience in solitary. Yeah, so the, the inspiration for the film, we created a short film, it's about 14 minutes, The Box. Uh, I worked alongside a few uh, amazing people, uh, my friend Shao uh, and uh, three people who unfortunately spent significant amount of time in solitary confinement. And we, we told our story through a series of interviews and then uh, some reenactments using some stop frame animations. We're really cool. We won seven film festivals thus far and we just did a deal. So now the film is going to New York Times, their op docs. So they'll be rolling out the film over the next couple of months. I'm excited about that. Uh, our, our, our goal was we wanted the world to know that 
on any given day, 80,000 and 90,000 people are subjected to solitary confinement. In 2007, I believe the international community, United Nations deemed it torture. So we're torturing people. Uh, I wanted to remind people that taxpaying citizens are paying for this torture to take place, men, women, and children. And that 95% of people who are incarcerated will return to society and then they return damaged. And these scars that these men, women, and children suffer are invisible scars. It damages them. It doesn't allow them to reacclimate into society and we pay for it. And so that was the reason why I wanted to make the film. Yeah, and uh, it, earned, it injures your brain and it's a brain that's already injured before you even walk into solitary and that's the thing. And I know one guy, he's been, he spent eight years in solitary and he goes to work now, he's out. He goes to work and he comes home and he stays in his room the whole night. Is that oh. what we want, agoraphobic people? Oh, yeah. yeah. What you on that? Yeah, so thank you for making that incredible film. And the New York Times, oh my God. So, I mean, now it's becoming an international, it'll be international and, yeah. and available for everybody to look at and see. Um, so on your master plan, oh yeah, you got a Corvette. This is such a great, this is such a great story because, you know, you had to get it, right? You had to get the Corvette. That's it. But it was doing more damage than it, than the joy of having that amazing car. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. I was a little naive about you know the the workings of America, but driving while black is a real thing, especially when you're driving a nice car. It just became a really uh, challenging, uh, depreciating asset that I had, <laughs> and so I got rid of it. But uh, because I got pulled over 26 times in two years, still never had a ticket a day in my life. And they were just looking for, they, I don't know who they thought I was, but I kept getting pulled over. And so I got rid of it. But as I, I continue, continue my work over the years after that, and my book went to publication, I did go back and, and buy that black Corvette convertible with nice rims. So I have it, it's downstairs. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you've returned, you've returned back to your master plan. Right. Um, I have a question. How's Steve doing and how's Tukey doing? Steve is doing really well. It took him 20 years, but he's home. He uh, started a software company, living his best life. He brought his dream car too. It's not as cool as my car, but he got his. Uh, he just had a baby, baby girl, uh, two months ago. He's married, uh, he's living his best life. And Tookie has been home now, I guess Tookie's been home now, going on two years. And he's working and I don't know, I got a chance to, I got a chance to spend some time with him not too long ago, just like an amazing person. And it was weird because it was Tookie, it was the judge that let him out and it was the judge who let me out. And we were all working together on a Zoom call, talking to other state's attorneys and judges around the country. It's like, who, who thought we would ever be doing something like this? Well, and you wrote in the book, you didn't think Tookie would get out. I mean, because of his crime, it was a white crime. He, yeah. yeah. But uh, that is such great news. I mean, wow. I mean, because I was rooting for, you know, you root for, these are your heroes suddenly, you know? That's a nice guy too. And, you know, I was really frustrated. I think he ended up serving 28 years in prison. And he also had a, a spotless uh, institutional record. I mean, he did more stuff than me. So like he, he accomplished everything. He did all fiber optics and computer repair. I mean, he just did everything. Wow. Another, you know, another magical, incredible person living in prison. Yeah. So now you have this art career. Can you tell us about that? Wait, but first, tell, first sorry, first tell us about um, you have been have uh, Barclay Enterprises. Yes. Tell us what that is, because I know people want to know what's Chris Wilson doing. What has he done? It's it doesn't stop. Yes. So I started uh, Barclay Investment Corporation when I first came home from prison. I guess about ten years ago, about nine and a half years ago, and I was doing contracting work, building restaurants, apartment buildings, also knocking them down, which I really enjoyed. 
but I shut down my contracting company, Barclay, uh, in 2020 when the pandemic hit. Uh, a combination of reasons of one, like first wanting to do something else because I became an artist and I wanted to, I've really enjoyed the process of making art. So I wanted to do that. And then um, I decided to shut down the company and I helped all my employees get jobs at other places. So I've been doing that. Uh, I've been making art for the past couple of years now, and it's just changed my life. It allowed me to start uh, the Chris Wilson Foundation, which, uh, you know, I take proceeds from my art and donate some to the foundation. I've been raising money and helping people, uh, uh, prison education, people inside of prison, uh, gaining uh, bachelor's degrees and associate's degrees for reentry, financial literacy, art-related programs. And so it was just a different different body of work that I'm doing now, but I really, really like it a lot. And it doesn't feel like work to me. Well, and just, just to talk about your Barclay, you were hiring formerly incarcerated people. Yeah, almost exclusively, yeah. yeah. Men and women, people who have been impacted by the criminal justice system. Sometimes I would, I would contract a school, a high school or middle school and hire local so that, cause most people in Baltimore don't have cars. So I would hire local so that people can walk to work. I mean, I felt like that was important. Yes, yes. And, and just to get used to working, sometimes people don't even, don't even know how to get there on time. I mean, it's like, a, it's like having a teenager. I mean, I'm, my son does not know what time is. Yeah. But until you know what time is, you don't know what time is. Um, so you have also the master plan program that you're yes. piloting, right? Yes. So I decided to turn uh, the book into uh, a software course, sort of like a master class style course, 12 units, walking individuals through uh, each unit. Uh, there's a series of videos. I partnered with a software company, created like some exams and quizzes and some really cool stuff. All my art is weaved in all throughout the course. And it's, it's just, I, I look at it as a tool. Uh, we started uh, in Rikers Island. So we beta tested there last year and they liked it so much that it expanded from 520 to the entire Rikers Island, taking it. And I've been going inside of Rikers Island and interviewing graduates of this program for the past, well, for the past year. So I go in once a month, uh, but it's really cool when I go into a housing unit and I meet someone, some woman or, some guy who's like, I finished your course and I was really inspired. I like the, the the TED Talk links that you linked into it and like your, your reading list. I read everything. I watched every TED Talk. I read your book and I'm going to be the next Chris Wilson, but I'm going to do it better than you did. And I, I love it when they say that. And it's like, all right, show, show me, prove it. And so I stay in touch with, um, with the folks who graduate from the course. And then we have a few other versions of the course that are outside of uh, we're doing some stuff in New Jersey for the juvenile justice system and then uh, the state of, uh, of Maryland. And we're talking to several other uh, jurisdictions and states. And so right now we're in 22 states and a few hundred prisons and jails. Right, this is just one of, this is just another thing that Chris Wilson is capable of. See, because yes. you're limitless. That's the thing, that's what, that's what you came to realize two years in on prison. I understood the value of surrounding myself with smart and amazing people. I think it's important for me to remind people like our listeners that there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing really special about me, but I made it this far because I reached out to people, I allowed mentors in my life. And so there's a handful of people in my life who helped me get this far. And so that, that's how I'm able to do the work that I'm doing is because of the people that I surround myself with. And I want people who hear this uh, podcast, this interview, and I want them to think about that. Who's in your life that can, that can help you? Who should be talking to? And not the person that's like, hey, you got some time off. Let's go get drunk. Let's go get high or something. Like, no, you want to be around people that's like, how do we build something? How do we make our, our, our parents proud and our grandparents? And how do we, how do we lift our communities up? You know, and there's nothing wrong with wanting nice things. Like, you know, how do we get a nice apartment or a nice car? You can have all of those things and help your community. But how do we do those things? And so I want people to start thinking about conversating with people that help you build stuff like that. That's, that's what piques my interest. Amazing. Um, so 
we got questions for you. Um, we have some questions for you from people in prison. Um, so Dave on Blackstone, he's the one who wants to do the book club at Kern Valley State Prison. And he said, what did you find most helpful in helping you earn your freedom? That's one of his questions. So, so optimism, faith, and the power of relationships. When I started surrounding myself with optimistic, smart people and started reading and studying and building, my perspective on the world changed. So I think that was the most important thing. Awesome. Um, uh, he says, he also asks, what did you find the most difficult in transitioning to free life? Emotional support. So it wasn't getting a job or finding a place to stay, even though those things were challenging, but it was coming home at 32 and then seeing people my age with families and wives and going on vacations and they had cars and they had like bank accounts. And then I would try to, you know, I had my $10 phone from Radio Shack and I would try to meet a nice woman or introduce myself to people and they would laugh at me. And it was hard for me, but I had people around me that would coach me back into shape. They just be like, dude, don't worry about that, man. You're going to be good. Like, don't worry. I'll be all sad and stuff. And they would help me, like, just stay positive. But a lot of people don't have that. A lot of people, at least where I come from, people say, well, forget about that. Like, here, take this pack, and you can make $5,000 in one night. Or how about we do this quick robbery, and you can get on your feet, and you can buy a car, put down a down payment, stuff like that. And so I was lucky and blessed to have people in my life that was like, you know, I know this is tough for you. They were madder than I was actually. And they said, but we're gonna help you get through this. And so we should, we should start thinking about this before we get to the point of making uh, you know, bad decisions. Well, it's the same shenanigans, right? You, yeah. you, you stayed on your path. Davon asks, he also asks, would you be willing to mentor me? He asks. Yeah, with, the, with them raising, uh, I'm, I'm the busiest man in the world, but a lot of people reach out to me with questions or advice, or I do calls and stuff with people sometimes. Uh, I'm happy to do that, of course. Wonderful. And before I, I have a couple more questions, and I want to get back to the, the show you just did. Um, this is from Daniel Henson. He says, Dear Chris, thank you for your book. Thank you for surviving prison and remembering us. At 16, I committed a terrible crime and took a deal for 176 years to life. Thanks to a Senate bill enacted after the Miller, Alabama ruling, I'm going to the parole board on July 20th. My question is, how do you deal with the stigma of having been incarcerated? And would it, would it, does it matter what you were in prison for? God forgive me, I killed four of my family members and ran away with my black girlfriend as my family was racist. Would I be accepted back into society? Thank you for your book and thank you for the hope you provide. Wow. Um, so I would say that there is a stigma that's attached to people that's been impacted by the criminal justice system, like specifically uh, a felony conviction. What's important, and I, I think about, I'll, I'll use myself as an example and just like my experience. It's important for you to come to terms to, of why you ended up in prison, whether you did it, or, or even if you didn't, uh, how you put yourself in that circumstance uh, to be convicted. Remorse is really important. Uh, I mean, you know, everyone makes mistakes, especially young people whose brains aren't developed and their prefrontal cortex is just like, they make these rash decisions and people lose their lives. That's unfortunate. I sympathize with uh, the victims and families uh, of victims. Uh, it's, but it's also important for folks who committed crimes like this to, to come to terms so for like rehabilitation, remorse, but that's still not enough. And so just as a person now on the outside, you know, I would ask an individual and we all need to ask ourselves these questions. What makes you different? What's gonna keep you home? What's changed since the time, let's say you were 16, you committed this crime and you had a difficult uh, upbringing, you were around the wrong people. We understand that that's messed up. How are you different? How'd you spend your incarceration? Were you studying? Did you go to therapy? Did you, I mean, did you unpack all these issues that led you to prison? And what is your plan when you come home? That, like, that's, that's what I would ask. And it's like, if a person can answer this, these questions, if, if, they, if they are remorseful, they deserve a second chance. I agree. I absolutely agree. 
and Daniel is extremely remorseful. Yeah, you, you, I'm proud to know Daniel for sure. Uh, one more question and then I know we have to wrap it, wrap it up. Jasper asks, what prompted you to write the book, The Master Plan? I decided to write the book because a few reasons. I wanted the world to understand how a person like me who uh, is a good person, how does a person like me get swept up into the criminal justice system? And what I learned when I got there, that there was hundreds of thousands of Chris's and Christine's like me who uh, were in prison, got swept up just like I did. It was important for people to understand that. A lot of people live in bubbles where they do, they work their job, they may get something to eat and watch their shows on Netflix, and then maybe a little bit of news. And then, they, and then these are people who, you know, they vote and they have an opinion on how the criminal justice system looks. They don't know about all the stories of children being dealt a bad hand, spending time in, in foster care and being abused and sexually abused till they finally like snap. They never heard of like stuff like this. And so I think it's, I thought it was important for uh, the world to know how we end up in prison. Two, I also felt like it was important. It, I felt like it was important to uh, inspire people who have been incarcerated or people who are, are coming home from prison that you are not your crime. You are better than the, the worst mistake that you made in your life. And yeah, and, and you, you can reinvent yourself and, and live a dope life. You don't have to say, well, I, I'm convicted of a felony. I can't do anything with my life. I felt like it was important to prove that wrong. And then finally, there are a lot of people in America, uh, legislators and, and, and people who feel like the system is doing just okay. It's doing its job decimating black and brown communities, uh, denying people like their rights to vote. And I like to prove them wrong. And I tend to, to prove people wrong by being successful. And that's it, yeah. Success is the best revenge, right? Okay, so you, you're now an artist, you know, you keep reinventing yourself from a felon to a huge business owner to a criminal justice warrior and now an artist. Um, so you just did a show, I Can Show You a Way Out exhibition. Can yes. you tell us about that? Absolutely, so I just, uh, my opening was last night. So I partnered with uh, a cannabis branding uh, company, House of Puff, and then uh, medical marijuana uh, space, uh, Etain, and then also Solitary Watch. Uh, Solitary.org uh, is an organization they advocate against solitary confinement. So I had an opportunity to read a few dozen letters from people uh, in solitary confinement. They gave me permission to create a body of work from after reading their letters. I had also spent a significant amount of time in solitary confinement. And so I took all of these letters and included my experience and create uh, a painting uh, that's titled Positive Delusions. And it was about the things that I thought about while in prison, the things that people uh, who are in solitary confinement now, and as I read about wanting to see the, the sky again, uh, wanting to uh, be free or just, just different things. And so I was able to tell a story through a series of colors. And so last night was the opening of the show. It was an incredible turnout. Uh, a lot of amazing people showed up. Uh, it, was, it was really great. Yeah, it's, it was mind blowing. It was a dream come true. I'm going to include some of the photos so people uh, of the painting so people can see what yeah. you've done. And my last question, Chris, um, what is now on your master plan? I think what's on my master plan now, it's about 90 something percent completed. I added a few things on it. Uh, I want to do more work in the philanthropic space. I want to put a, a more emphasis on my legacy and how I will be remembered. And I want to keep making art so I can't do it anymore. And that's, it's pretty simple. Like that said, I want to be happy. I am happy. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's it. I'm, I'm doing exactly what I envisioned I would be doing. And it just it feels good because it's beautiful. And I guess one more question. What's the message to the 1.9 million people living in prison? Create your own master plan. Think about your legacy. Think about your end game, how you'll be remembered. Uh, and it is possible to live a really dope life, do some good in the world, make money, 
and help people. It's possible. Think about it. That's, that's what I want people to think about. Just do it. Go forth and be dope. That's what I like to say. Go do it. Wow. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for who you are, who you're showing us is possible. And thank you for the work you're doing and changing the world. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. Well, there you have it. My interview with Chris Wilson. I feel so honored to have spoken with him. And just to be in his presence was a, a real gift for me. Thank you, Chris Wilson, for your wisdom, for your inspiration and for your basic guide on how to get out of prison. I hope the people watching this um, will take this to heart and the people watching this in prison will get curious about what the master plan is and start your own master plan. There's no time like the present to realize how important and valuable you are. And there's no moment like the present than to make that all happen. So take Chris's words, take Chris's example, and let's get busy. Let's get busy changing our lives and creating our own master plans. Thank you for listening to this podcast and YouTube presentation. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share. And thank you so much for watching and I'll see you next time.